How do you sort out the so-called jargon from real-world practices that work? Do the members of your organization find some business advice utterly confusing? Welcome to the 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. In this program, we set the record straight and in terms that people at any level of business and technology can understand. Now, here is your host, Sam Holzman. Welcome. Welcome to uh, the 2020s Enterprise. I'm your host, Sam Holzman. And uh, today we're going to be completing the uh, series of broadcasts I had on moving from the industrial age to the internet age into the information age. And uh, this is the last episode uh, on this particular topic. Uh, There's 12 different attributes that we were discussing uh, moving from the industrial age through the Internet age into the information age. And we'll be covering the last of those in the broadcast uh, today. And each one of these attributes have a profound impact on all aspects of business and technologies uh, that are out there. The other thing is, is that the industrial age and the Internet age dominant organizations are and may be facing some displacement, which uh, could be opportunities for new entrants and, of course, the change required for the existing incumbent uh, uh, actors that are out there right now. And uh, these new dominating organizations uh, in the information age uh, could be a whole new cast of characters uh, that are out there. Uh, We've not reached an emergency situation yet uh, by any means, but time is of the essence. And uh, hopefully after this uh, broadcast, uh, you can begin the planning of your organization's opportunities uh, in the information age. Uh, Let's uh, wait a few days until next Monday morning. And before we get into that particular topic of the uh, information age movement, uh, as we have done in our past broadcasts, I want to bring you some uh, things that you can possibly use today, demystifying some of the uh, news that's out there, uh, giving you some things that uh, may be of interest to you. Uh, right now in your organizations, either from a business standpoint, a technology standpoint, or organization standpoint that's there. And the first thing I want to cover is an article that I uh, uh, saw uh, that is titled, The Problem with AI. AI, of course, stands for Artificial Intelligence. Study says it's too white and male, calls for more women and minorities. And uh, this is a fascinating article. Uh, artificial intelligence, that's, that's a, a, one of those mystical topics uh, that are out there. And basically, there's really nothing mystical about it, but it, uh, it's that hype that we're trying to get through in this broadcast that's there. Uh, there's nothing magical about this. It's a series of algorithms that works on data. And this article starts pointing out uh, some of the issues that may be there. Uh, and the article starts off saying the ACLU, the American Civil, American Civil Liberties Union, excuse me, and other groups urged Amazon specifically to halt selling facial recognition technology to law enforcement departments. Uh, this is one of the first areas that people are trying to use artificial intelligence. And another broadcast, I'll be discussing what the uh, Chinese are doing in this p- uh, particular area. In my humble opinion, they are by far the leaders uh, in this particular area of facial recognition. I'll be discussing that on an upcoming broadcast that's there. Uh, But the article goes on to say facial recognition systems frequently misidentify people of color. Leading tools charge higher interest rates to Hispanics and African Americans. I thought the Internet was going to be the great equalizer that's out there. Well, the 
internet and its programmers are made up of algorithms and people writing code. There's nothing magic about those. And if the data and the code are, quote, biased, not because people are being biased, but it's the data collection that is the issue that's there. Also, sentencing algorithms for criminals discriminate against black defendants. Job hunting tools favor men. Negative emotions are, are more likely to be assigned to black men's faces than white men. Computer vision systems for self-driving cars, we all know about what's going on there, have a harder time spotting pedestrians with darker skin tones. Oh, this is a wonderful set of news that's out there. And we're just going to let the computers take over on everything that's there. One of the key reasons is, this is going to sound kind of funny, the people building these technologies, according to this article, are overwhelmingly white and male. And when they're looking at these algorithms, they're looking through their own eyes, if I can use that phrase. People often think that these computer algorithms and all these automated systems are neutral or scientific, but they're really not. Research is increasingly uncovering that AI systems can cause harm to underrepresented groups and those with less power. Once again, it's based on data collection. And if the majority of the data is from a certain group, biased or unbiased, in its collection process, of course, that's the way the algorithms are going to interpret that. Okay. An assistant professor at the University of Washington describes this. This is a new term that you're probably going to be hearing. Data violence. Oh, boy. Data violence. Probably a good name for a new TV show, probably. Or data science that disproportionately affects some more than others. So we can see here, once again, that a series of algorithms that are built by human beings um, needs to recognize that the human beings have an internal bias that's there, not because they're evildoers, just because of what they're seeing. Uh, Democratic lawmakers introduced the first-of-its-kind bill in the Senate and the House that would require big companies to test for algorithmic accountability of their artificial intelligence systems, such as facial recognition. I mean, you just can't throw the algorithms out there and say it's the computer's fault? Well, congratulations and hooray. That's about time. And I'm not big on government getting involved in a lot of these things here. But just that note itself should get the vendors of, of this technology out there to recognize, well, perhaps there's something wrong here. Perhaps just writing the code and putting it out there isn't enough that's out there. Stanford University unveiled an artificial intelligence institute with 120 faculty and technology re- readers, uh, leaders excuse me, to represent humanity is what they called it. This is Stanford University. But not a single person on the faculty was black. Boards created by tech companies to examine the ethics of artificial intelligence also lack members of underrepresented groups. How could this be in 2019 when you think about it that's there? Google announced an external advisory council on AI ethics last month. The NAACP president complained the new body lacks a qualified member of the civil rights community. He said this is offensive to people of color and indicates AI tech wouldn't have the safeguards to prevent implicit and racial bias. Google later scrapped the advisory council. Well, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Maybe they should look at the selection process. This is a mess, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go with technology essentially getting ahead 
of our, our understanding of its use that's out there. This has been a danger, of course, for many, many years, well past, uh, well, well before the Internet age. It's nothing new as far as throwing technology out there and then understanding or starting to realize the unintended consequences of those types of things. Um, and uh, the final close in this article, I love it. If the artificial intelligence in- industry wants to change the world, then it needs to get its own house in order first. Of course, that's not going to prevent all the hype. That's not going to prevent uh, anything else that's out there uh, you know, going forward. Of course, it's going to make headlines because all you got to do is put artificial intelligence into your organization and you'll never have to work and think again in your life and you can get rid of all the people that are in the organization. Ha, ha, ha. Now, the Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, has a, a little bit of a problem on their hands when it comes to this stuff. TSA agents say they're not discriminating against black women. This is the human beings. But their bad body scanners might be. Doreen Wanzer travels frequently for work. Almost every time she steps out of, out of an airport body scanner, security screeners pull her aside and run their fingers through her hair. It's called a hair pat-down. It turns out there's an issue beyond the screeners. It's the machines themselves. We have that same type of situation that couples uh, from the last article, essentially, that I, I read to you about the intrinsic bias in the, the, the uh, algorithms themselves. That can be addressed. Now, there's a number of sciences out there. One of them is called design of experiments um, that essentially works on the principle you can design essentially tests scientifically rather than saying, well, I've got all the data in the world. Everything should be okay. Well, it isn't. It depends, of course, on the sampling that is going on. Are you getting essentially a sample that's out there? And what are you understanding with that sample? Um, It's sort of like DNA. Uh, I think I have the numbers correct. About 97% of people's DNA is the same as a fruit fly. It's the 3% that makes the difference. Well, when it comes to artificial intelligence, we're going to have essentially the same type of situation, um, you know, that's out there. And we also have to be very careful Um, you know, of that. I think most of you in our audience have heard of the phrase and your organizations probably use cloud computing. Um, The next miracle that will solve world hunger. That's a little bit of a joke. Um, And cloud computing has a history. And that history goes back to the days of some of you remember this phrase, time sharing. Now, not everything is exactly the same as time sharing in computers from years ago, but there's a startling set of similarities that are there. And time sharing was brought on, you know, a number of years ago because the incremental cost of a unit of computing power in an organization was quite dramatic. Uh, Essentially, during those initial technology days, people would buy large mainframe computers that cost millions of dollars, and an increment of capacity was, again, in the millions of dollars that were there. And so people were looking at ways to incrementally, rather than stair-step, their capacities in their organization. Sometimes it was because you had, for example, year-end processing or holiday processing that an organization had to do. 
And the industry that evolved around that was called essentially the timesharing industry. It was essentially a rental model for that. Now, what we have to recognize as human beings is that anytime we go out and get anything, it doesn't matter if it's computers or anything else that we tend to look at, we have three choices that we can make when we go out and acquire something. We can rent it, we can lease it, or we can buy it. And we make those decisions almost transparently. We look at cost and flexibility and agility and all sorts of different things that, you know, that sometimes go unconscious. But when it comes to millions of dollars versus expenses, it's a whole different story. You can rent a house. You can lease a house. You can buy a house. You can rent a car. You can lease a car. You can buy a car. Um, some things you can't rent. You can't rent, uh, you know, uh, vegetables. <laughs> you can't lease them. You got to sort of buy them, uh, you know, that's there. But some things essentially have the model. And mo- a lot of the things that uh, uh, we see nowadays, uh, you know, are like that. Uh, I was looking at a, in, in awe uh, at a site that says, you know, you can, some of you may do this. You can rent uh, tuxedos. You can rent uh, ball gowns, uh, you know, those types of things. Uh, versus par- uh, purchasing them. Suffice it to say that in our lives, we have three choices to make. You can rent things, you can lease things, and you can buy things. And that was the whole premise behind, essentially, uh, timesharing. Now, what happened in timesharing years ago was that there was a gradual, as it was called then, timesharing sticker shock. And the sticker shock that was going on was all of a sudden the End of month bill came in and says, oh, my gosh, look how much we spent on this shared resource. I got a great idea. You know what we should do? Instead of renting this thing, let's go to the vendor vendor and sign a one-year lease. Hey, that's a great idea. And, of course, you can imagine what happened after the one year. Oh, my gosh, look at the cost of this thing. You know, we're going to need this for the next three or four years. You know what we should do? Something radical. Why don't we go buy this thing and bring it in-house? Okay, why don't we do that? So we matured from the rent to lease to buy option. So what we are talking about here is a model that goes to cloud computing that parallels what we saw in the timesharing days, a rent, lease, buy model. The difference is in the cloud computing era that we're in right now is an increment of capacity is much cheaper. And the reason I'm bringing this up is an article that we saw to bring to your attention. IBM's first quarter revenues miss as cloud unit cools. Now, the article talks about essentially IBM having a problem with cloud computing. But what I'm suggesting to our audience and to others that are looking at cloud computing, perhaps we're now following the same model that we saw in the timesharing days. In other words, organizations are recognizing that cloud computing wasn't the panacea that was out there. There's a use for all of these technologies. But again, we have to look at the cost and benefit for each one of these, uh, you know, that are out here. And there is no one magic technology that will solve all the issues, you know, that we have. So we're now hearing words like cloud computing. Another phrase that we hear out there is fog computing. Yes, you heard this right, F-O-G. Now, if you look at the word fog compared to the word cloud, what are we seeing? Fog is closer to the ground, which is a sort of an indication 
that maybe we're talking about things that are actually closer to the enterprise. And then we hear the phrase edge computing, and there's a number of definitions for edge. One of them is it's really, really, really close to the enterprise. And of course, what we're probably hearing after that is, why don't we bring this stuff in-house? And it's that same type of situation that's there. So again, I'm not against cloud computing at all. I'm just saying that, is it following the same cycle? Now, for those of you in organizations, this brings up the question, what is your future plan? Let's say that you want to migrate from the cloud. How are you going to do that? Do you have essentially the ability to do that? How do you do that? What's the contingency plans that were out there uh, to be able to do that? What if you want to switch cloud vendors? What if you want to go in-house? What do you want to go hybrid types of models that are out there? So all of these questions are about planning and architecture, not only about implementation. So it's a fascinating thing that we're looking at as essentially we move forward in the information age um, um, that, you know, that's out here. Something to keep in mind, as I said, as we move into the information age, which is the topic of the conversation, um, you know, that we'll be having in just a few minutes that's there. One other thing that uh, we find of interest is what we refer to in this particular article as make corporations, not customers, suffer from data breaches. This is a fascinating twist, I think, that we're maybe seeing pretty soon. Um, I don't know if any of you have uh, 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 experienced a breach of any kind, whether it was an identity theft or a credit card or getting information that your uh, your password may be compromised. We've probably all experienced that. And depending on how deep that particular issue is, uh, some of you may have uh, expended um, uh, significant sums of money or at least significant sums of time trying to find out what is going on. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, out there. And basically, uh, whose, quote, fault is it? Is it your fault? Is it my fault? No, we didn't do anything. We had an implicit trust in the people taking our information that they had the wherewithal, the understanding, the background to make sure that everything was in good shape. Really kind of simple, frankly, um, you know, as you, um, you know, as, as you look at it. And recently, uh, one of the articles that uh, was there about a recent breach was an organization called Earl Enterprises. And I'm not picking on them, you know, from any of the other ones that are out there. But they have a number of restaurants, the Earl of Sandwich, Mixology, Planet Hollywood, a a Mexican restaurant, an Italian restaurant. And uh, they even have Chicken Guy, which is uh, the, uh, the television personality that's there. And about 2 million people. Uh, information was exposed. And this breach was kind of scary because the hackers managed to remotely get into the point-of-sale terminals, those essentially cash registers that were in the stores. Yeah. (laughs) And, And basically, malware viruses were installed and scraped your data. So as you were essentially doing your transaction... Uh, this was all essentially grabbed by evildoers and, of course, sold on uh, what's called essentially the dark web, you know, that was uh, out there. Um, and uh, this is kind of, uh, you know, scary, uh, you know, that, you know, as you uh, as you look at it. So these breaches are essentially, you know, all over the place. So what can we do? What can you and I do? Some of it is is kind of uh, uh, essentially on the fringe elements. One is to 
go back to this thing that's called cash. Anybody remember cash? <laughs> Maybe we should start using more cash or prepaid credit cards that essentially have some limits on them. And those are the most secure and, and uh, ways of doing business. Okay. Uh, people have gone to look at identity management services. I'm not sure they actually work. I, I don't have much information that would give me comfort that they're doing anything different. And of course, there have been breaches at this, you know, Equifax, for example, uh, you know, that were out there. And uh, it really it doesn't make any sense for you and I to pay your own financial institutions for things that they're doing without your consent. Kind of an interesting phrase that's out there. The other thing that is frightening is the length of time that it takes for these things to get noticed. Earl Enterprises took 10 months to respond to this breach. Well, what was going on during that you know, particular time that was there to your data and my data and things like that as we, uh, you know, as we see it? And so you know, this could be kind of a scary situation that's out there. And uh, it's pretty ridiculous state of affairs when we have to start using cash and things like that. But basically, what are we going to do? What are we going to do in this situation? And maybe we have to put a little bit more pressure on the people that are taking our data to make this happen. And unfortunately for you and I, as consumers, there's only so much self-defense that we can do to stop this kind of fraud. Uh, bad press doesn't seem to do it. Find people, finding people and, and organizations don't seem to do it, unfortunately. And that leaves one thing which is uncomfortable, regulation. I'm not sure that that's the answer either. Uh, but possibly that's going to be the way to you know, address these types of things as we uh, move forward. Um, all of this information that's out here, this privacy information that you and I, if you're an organization, a corporation, we have to be sensitive to this. If you're an individual, you have to be sensitive to this information that's out there. And uh, basically, we have to look at it as, as a evolution in the information age where information is the new currency. And you and I are being sold for various dollars and cents that are out there. And if this is the new currency in the information age, we have to find a way, a new way to uh, handle and address the currency that's out there, where it is and what is going on in those situations. And uh, there's no, as I said, quick solution that we see out there, but hopefully there will be. So as we move forward into this particular uh, information, um, we can look at essentially data as the asset in the information age that's uh, out there. And um, hopefully we can essentially look at this and make sure everything is in order, um, you, know, that's, you know, that's out there. Now, who is doing a good job and who can we sort of trust as we, um, we look at these things? And the healthcare industry, um, in one study that we were looking at, is essentially the worst at protecting consumer data, at least from this particular study. And the best at it, believe it or not, the federal government. I know that sounds kind of uh, interesting at this particular point, but the federal government seems to be one of the best at doing this. 
and um, an audit that was done by the Online Trust Alliance, and I don't know much about them. I have read a little bit about them and and, and what they do. Uh, 91% of federal government sites made their honor roll, which is kind of kind of nice. In comparison to at the other end of the scale, and there's lots of industries in between, the healthcare industry, 57%, um, you know, was out there. One of the scary things is the internet service providers that you and I use are only sitting a little bit above the healthcare industry at 63%, (laughs) um, you know, that's out there. So we have a situation, essentially, that there isn't much – uh, out there that's comfortable at this particular point as far as these privacy things and things out there when all this data is going on. And please remember, we're talking about the information age coming up. And in the information age, what we see here essentially is a situation where all of this information that we have out there needs a little bit different protection. And so as we go further into this data breach issue that's there, we can go back, and of course, you've read some of these things that are out there. They're massive. Uh, the 2015 Office of Personnel Management, okay? 2017, the Equifax breach that probably hit a lot of us that were out there. The Marriott breach uh, of, of, of the hotel information that was out there. So all of these things require us to be vigilant, uh, you know, as we move forward in the uh, information age as we uh, move forward. So it's an interesting world we live in. As I said, this whole uh, technology that we're looking at and and what we're trying to emphasize to our listeners and our our clients is we're moving into the information age. And this information age is just starting, moving out of the internet age, where data, information, stuff, things are the key that people are looking at. This is the new currency And as this new currency essentially spreads around the world, we have to look at new ways of understanding it and protecting it, uh, which is different. And passwords aren't going to do it. I don't care if you have multi-factor authentication. It's something else. We're seeing it. I don't care how many things we have, but if somebody puts a piece of malware on the point-of-sale terminal and we have a credit card that has that little chip in it, it still doesn't matter. That's the problem that we have. Interesting world we live in. Yes, I'm going to still keep using credit cards. I'm just going to make sure uh, that I'm a, a sort of a, you know, a, aware of, of, of what is uh, going on in that area. Okay? So, just a little bit of hopefully news that you can use as you're moving forward um, in, uh, in, in your daily activities. And so the topic that we're going to complete today, again, comes back to essentially moving into the information age. And we chatted in our uh, uh, broadcast a number of broadcasts ago about the 12 attributes that we have in the uh, coming in the information age and the differences there. And I want to just name those off and then we'll complete the understanding of those attributes. We've talked about the dominant technology changing, the icon moving to the info bit as we called it, the science moving to the ontological science world. The output is information. The energy source is the human mind. The basis of wealth is information. Those are the ones that we covered in our broadcast to date. Now we go into essentially what is going to make a difference coming up 
in this new age. And the industrial age was economies of scale. The bigger you were, the better off things were. In the internet age that we're essentially moving out of, uh, that's there, uh, you can essentially move forward. And the internet age was the network dominance and ownership that was there. And the network dominant and ownership was the key to the internet age. And it was whether it was the internet service providers or the people that were consolidating all this information, uh, the Googles, the Facebooks, those types of things, Wikipedia, those types of organizations that were essentially the consolidators and the pipe suppliers. They didn't own anything. Let's remember that. They didn't own anything. They essentially were the ones that were supplying the pipe, and somebody had to put things into the pipe to make that essentially difference. And in the information age, that's the new one. That's the intellectual capital. The owners of the intellectual capital were the key in the information age. And you see that movement right now. For example, the Walt Disney companies uh, have already announced their own pipe, essentially. Um, I think it's called Disney Plus is what they're going to. And they've sort of told uh, Netflix, uh, see ya, <laughs> we're going to have our own pipe. And, of course, what Netflix is doing, they're not sitting still. They're essentially coming up with their new uh, types of uh, uh, formats and new types of programs. Again, the intellectual property becomes the key. It's not the pipe anymore, uh, you know, that's out there. So we see this movement in the information age. Not many people have called it the information age yet. Uh, and differentiated that from the Internet age. And as you can see now, there's a clear difference. So the dominant network dominance and ownership was the key to the Internet age. The intellectual property, the stuff that goes through the pipes, becomes the key in the information age. Again, the old players can do it. The new players are coming on you know, very quickly. And for example, this format that we're using right now is a new way that we can reach audiences that we sort of haven't been able to reach before. And it's kind of great. I think it's kind of great. I hope you think so too, you know, as we move forward together. Another age attribute is defining the work. And in the industrial age, it was laborers, the physical labor that we're talking about. In the internet age, and this is something that is going to be affecting your information uh, technology organizations, the dominant defining the work workforce were programmers and technologists. Again, they were building the software. Now we're trying to figure out how to use that software in a more mature process. And in an upcoming uh, uh, broadcast, we'll be talking about the maturing of the uh, internet world or the technology world. It has three maturity levels, uh, just briefly what we call make to order, provide from stock, and assemble to order. I'm just going to leave those phrases out there for you, and we'll be discussing that in an upcoming broadcast that's there. And when we get into the assemble order activities, the dominant activity in the information age will be addressed by architects, ontologists, knowledge workers that are good in classifying information classifying information. And we have one more thing we want to cover before we take a short break, and that's what are we doing? In the industrial age, we were automating, 
And in the internet age, we were distributing things. It didn't matter what we were distributing, good stuff, bad stuff. <laughs> it was out there. We were just, you know, the meter was running as stuff goes through the pipe. In the information age, the value is going to be informing. Now, that's a pretty loose term right now. How do we measure the value of informing, information that's out there? And this is, this is an area that's being studied very, very carefully. It's easy to measure the flow of electrons through a pipe. Let me give you an analogy. It's easy to measure the gallons of oil going through a pipeline. It doesn't matter what's in the pipeline, so to speak. Well, how do you measure the value of the output that's there? And that's what informing is about. So we can see that these things are changing a bit, you know, as we go forward. So what are we doing in the industrial age? Automating. What are we doing in the internet age? We were distributing. What are we doing in the information age? We are informing. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be discussing the last three essentially characteristics of the movement of the information age when we come back. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the other side in just a couple of minutes. Is your organization in the internet age when those around you are moving into the information age? Are your hallway conversations filled with words and phrases like blockchain, AI, VR, cloud computing, and micro this and that? Are you interested in bringing some method to the madness? Then talk to us. Through years of consulting with clients all over the world, the Pinnacle Business Group and Architecture's Center of Excellence have developed an understanding of what makes a consultant-client relationship work. And this understanding comes to every engagement. The Pinnacle Business Group assists organizations in solving their business and system challenges with its unique, proven approaches, bringing teams of business and system personnel together to jointly define business and system requirements. The teams are led through a series of facilitated activities to provide innovative solutions to their business and system challenges. We look forward to hearing from you. Visit PinnacleBusinessGroup.com. You are listening to The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holtzman. We welcome questions and comments about the program via email to sam at eacoe.org. That's sam at eacoe.org. Now, back to The 2020s Enterprise. Welcome back. And we're discussing essentially the comparative ages moving into the information age. And we've been covering essentially the migration or the transformations going on from the industrial age to the internet age into the information age. And there are three more characteristics that I want to bring to your attention um, that are influencing this movement of the information age that really are going to affect uh, individuals, of course, and also the organizations themselves. And with that, one of the attributes I want to discuss right now is actually the organizational form. In other words, what's the organization going to look like? And most organizations out there follow uh, a hierarchical model right now. And uh, history is always fascinating if you go look at it. And I'm not a historian, but I always like to say, how did this happen? How, <laughs> how did all this happen? And one of the management books uh, that is read probably by a, a very, very high percentage of managers 
And um, if you look outside of the corporate world, especially in the government and uh, um, military complexes, um, is a uh, volume called Sun Tzu and the Art of War. And Sun Tzu was an ancient Chinese master warrior uh, that was essentially uh, uh, one of these uh, revered individuals, you know, obviously many, 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 many years ago. Um, and the book was actually about that, that he wrote on strategy and it was, it's a fascinating book and it is, it is almost mandatory reading in most, uh, uh, MBA programs, uh, you know, business administration programs and by management uh, scientists and things like that. And, uh, from a historical standpoint, I, I believe, I think I'm correct that Sun Tzu was the individual essentially that came up with the structure that you and I see in most organizations right now, which is hierarchical. And as, as his book notes, and it's been translated so many times, and um, I've, I've got two different copies of this thing and uh, that translated into English, and uh, there's little variations in there. But one of the stories it talks about was uh, essentially when, when he went to the emperor to try to explain his approach uh, to essentially making sure that he could form a military unit uh, so that the emperor could conquer the universe, essentially. And, and of course, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Uh, It's out there. And his philosophy is what he was trying to demonstrate as far as how he was going to do this. And so the uh, the uh, I'm sure that at, at that particular time, uh, just like the president or CEO of organizations today or the president of the U.S. or president of your company, uh, you know, they have consultants <laughs> that come in. And I'm a consultant, of course. So I'm sort of indicting ourselves a little bit. And they've got the answer. They always have the answer. Just to trust me, the answer is, uh, you know, 42. And it has nothing to do with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But basically... Sun Tzu said, let me demonstrate my approach to making sure that we have an army um, that is under my command and will essentially do exactly what we need to do to address what you want to do to essentially meet your mission objectives that are out there. So we asked essentially for um, the, the compu- concubines, excuse me, uh, that was the favorite, um, you know, uh, of, of the kingdom at that time. And you can imagine essentially, uh, what? And what he did was, what Sun Tzu did was he lined up all the concubines that were out there. And he says, I'm going to teach you a little bit about essentially uh, making sure that you follow directions and you have order. And there is essentially a logic and a command structure. So when I say something like we need to take this hill, everybody understands what that means. And essentially we all marching to the same drummer that's out there. So he lined up all the concubines, the favorites, of course, that were out there uh, at that particular time. Uh, excuse me if I sound sexist. That wasn't my intention. I'm just repeating a little bit about what was in the book. And he said, he said, okay, he says, just some simple commands. When I say march forward, and he demonstrated what march forward meant, and he looks back and he sees the concubines, you know, giggling a little bit. And he says, when I say march right, and he turned to the right, and he says, this is what I mean by that. When I mean march left, here's, and he did the same thing, he marched left. He says, are there any questions? And of course, there was giggling. 
uh, going on. And you can just see this because it sounded so simple. He said, okay. He says, now we're going to essentially test whether or not you understand these commands. Because in the heat of battle, of course, we can't have discussions. We can't have a committee meeting, you know, to address these types of things that are there. We have to have action. And we have to make sure that action is carried out precisely. So he said to the concubines, march forward. And you saw a little giggling going on and things like that. So, uh, okay, I'm going to say this. He took out his sword and he beheaded the first concubine that wasn't paying attention. That was an immediate performance review for the rest of the group. What do you think happened after that? (laughs) People understood that command and control structure. And that's what a hierarchical enterprise is. And that's mostly what organizations, believe it or not, today follow, a command and control structure. Uh, It's a pyramid type of structure that's there. I want to stress, I'm not saying it's bad, but maybe it was from an era that has passed, and there could be other ways to address these types of things now. That's the hierarchical enterprise that most organizations are in today. The organizational form that was common or is common in the Internet is generally referred to as a networked enterprise, and I don't mean network from a technical standpoint. It's a network. It's horizontal. It's horizontal. In other words, it's collaborate and communicate collaborate and communicate. So hierarchical is command and control. Networked is collaborate and communicate. But you just can't lay down the hierarchical organization sideways and have collaboration and communication. You know, because if you lay it down, you may not have what you're looking for. Instead of having silos, you may have sewers, which are not very good. And we're having issues with that, especially when it comes to sensitive information. When we're looking at sensitive information in a hierarchical organization, there is some control, if I can use that phrase, in a command and control structure. But in a collaborate and communicate, it's much harder. It's much harder. There's a freedom of access, so to speak, Um, that we possibly in the Internet age haven't been able to address very well. In the information age, it's going to get a bit more complicated. And the phrase that's being used in the organizational sciences is called cooperatively optimized, cooperatively optimized. And what that means is it's it's sort of going to be Um, uh, gathering and dispersing and gathering and dispersing and forming and dispersing and changing it a little bit. There's going to be some core understanding, but the optimization is going to occur around process or data or essentially missions that are out there. It'll be sort of like an accordion type of environment. Yes, there will be a backbone. There always has to be a backbone, but it'll be more cooperatively optimized, which will give essentially the agility that organizations are looking for. Agility in an organization doesn't come through handcrafting computer systems. It comes through the organization's design addressing the new area of an agile enterprise, which may be very different than an agile computer system, for example. So the organization has to be designed with that fluidity in mind that's, you know, that's there. 
Now, two more characteristics. Means of logistics. How are we going to get things? In the industrial age, it was plane, trains, and automobiles. Well, it was a great movie. But basically, the whole transportation system um, you know, that, that was, was set up out there. And a lot of, of course, the, the, the physical goods are still going to be transmitted that way, whether it's driverless or not, by the way. You've got airlines, you've got trains, you've got ships, you've got trucks, all these other things that are out there. Um, you know, it's, it's going to essentially carry over somewhat different players, possibly. Again, forget the human element, but basically some things, uh, you know, are characteristic um, of, of requiring that particular transportation mechanism. In other words, items that have mass, have weight, essentially, that's out there. Of course, any of you are fans of uh, my favorite television show probably of all time, which was the Jetsons. Uh, remember, Jane Jetson um, was the, uh, uh, the person that was sort of the uh, boss of the house, uh, and uh, she had the Futuraka cycle, uh, which was her environment to be able to make dinner, and uh, she would push these buttons and a uh, little pill pops out. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was pizza, sometimes it was hamburgers, stuff like that. And uh, as, uh, as the joke goes, uh, she was complaining that her index finger that was pushing the buttons uh, were hurting her because of all the kitchen work that she was doing uh, that was out there. So just with a bit of smile on my face, until we get to that point, you know, it may be a little bit different story. And uh, a, a quote uh, from Tom Monahan that's attributed to Tom Monahan, and Mr. Monahan uh, was the chairman of um, uh, Domino's Pizza, one of the uh, uh, large uh, delivery pizza companies in the United States. And uh, when the internet came about and all these other things, uh, he said, luckily, he says, they don't have to worry too much about this. We can't deliver pizzas through fax machines. Um, and I said to myself, yet. <laughs> but basically... The Internet age evolved into the network. So the distribution mechanism was the network, whether it's the Internet or wireless. But basically, the whole concept here of the network was there. And the information age, it's going to be essentially source to consumer. And we are starting to see this. Uh, part of it is going to be drones. Um, there was a miraculous demonstration uh, uh, just a little while ago of an organ delivery uh, to a hospital through a drone, uh, you know, from one source to the other. And um, so there's a lot of different things that essentially we can do there uh, to make this happen. And it's called source to consumer. And there's all sorts of logistics going on, you know, as we, uh, we see it. And the final attribute of the movement from the industrial age to the internet age to the information age is where is the marketplace? And traditionally, in the industrial age, shopping malls. I think we all know that. And we all know, you know, some of the benefits and trials and tribulations, frankly, that are going on in shopping malls today. And you see the movement, the, the, train, the changes going on in that physical type of environment that's, you know, that's there. In the Internet age, it was essentially, yes, the Internet, cyberspace, um, you, know, that's, you know, that's out there. But it was a tethered environment, I call it, a tethered environment that, uh, you know, that was there. And as we move into the information age, there's going to be more different, more types of distribution in the marketplace, a hyperspace, also peer-to-peer. -peer. 
you and I can exchange things. For example, um, you know, I can pay you through various formats right now without having a, a bank or a credit card intermediary, uh, you know, that's out there. Uh, airdrops, if you want to call the uh, the world of uh, essentially drones, you know, that type of environment that's there. And, of course, we've also seen uh, 3D uh, printing, you know, that's out there. Uh, in which we can essentially build things in our own home, our own laboratory, or in our organization that's out there. So there are 12 very distinct attributes that you and I need to be aware of in our daily lives and in our enterprise lives that are there. Dominant technologies, the icons are changing, the science behind all of this, the output, the energy sources, the basis of wealth, what is going to make a difference in the information age, Defining the work is changing. What are we actually doing? Once again, the information age is about informing. The organizational form that will probably affect most of us uh, very soon, as a matter of fact, and we see this movement right now. The means of logistics, the way we get products and services and things like that that are out there and where the marketplace is. So in the last few broadcasts that we've had together, we've covered in some depth that information, which is the basis, essentially, of our future broadcasts that are there. And so we've covered all of these activities that we see. And what we're going to be coming up with in our next broadcast is a very new topic, which is essentially the concept of digital transformation in the information age. And that will be our topic, essentially, of our next broadcast. And within that digital transformation, the key element being organizational change. Thank you for listening. We appreciate uh, you listening. And if you have any comments, please reach me at sam at eacoe.org, sam at eacoe.org. We'll see you next time. Have a great day. Any questions or comments, we'll be more than happy to answer them. Until next time, this is Sam Holzman. See you again. Thank you for tuning in this week to the 2020s Enterprise. Be sure to join your host, Sam Holzman, again for another edition of our program next Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll have more topics of discussion then. 